0: Thank you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Honey Are You Happy? Now you'll have to excuse my really bunged-up sounding voice. I'm in bed currently with COVID. It's hit me really hard this time. um, but I really wanted to get this episode out to you because I just think it's going to add such value to your day for anyone who is struggling with disordered eating, binge eating disorder, or who wants to learn a little bit more about intuitive eating from one of the most wonderful dietitians that I know. So today's guest speaker is Cassie Barnard. She is a food freedom dietitian and certified intuitive eating counsellor. She has dedicated her whole career to helping women break free from chronic dieting and helping them remove shame and guilt from eating, as well as building a peaceful relationship with food and their body. She's been working as a clinical dietitian since about 2016 and privately since about 2018. And to date, she's supported over 350 women in her one-to-one programs, over 100 women in group programs, and has also touched the lives of thousands more through her online speaking and presenting she is the founder of the eat with ease online program where you can work with her in a one-to-one or small group setting so if you'd like to find out any more about that already her her links and things are in the show notes head over there you can see her new website and you can also head on over to her instagram which is full of valuable information as always guys if this podcast adds value to your day please give it a rating and share it on your socials it really is a small gesture that you can do that supports the free content that I produce for you online. Thank you so much and enjoy the episode.
1: Hi Giles, thanks for having me. It's great to meet you and have a chat today. Yeah, definitely. Um,
2: Would you you mind just introducing yourself for our listeners today and just who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Cassie Barnard. I am a private online dietitian. So I work for myself and I specialize in the areas of binge eating, chronic dieting, body image, and intuitive eating. Um, I've been working as a dietitian for coming up to seven years now, which I had I actually checked that when I was coming on here. I was like, oh wow, it's actually nearly seven years. Where's that time gone? Very fast. <laughs> nice, <laughs> and I'd be all yeah. oh, right, exactly. They'll be working online um, and we private diet uh private clients for coming up to five years now. So I'm very passionate about this work. Um and yeah, I can't wait to dive in today. Amazing. And it's such an interesting and very topical
2: area to work in at the moment as well. Um, so yeah, what got you interested in working with people who have a difficult relationship with food and body image?
1: Mm, yeah. Uh, honestly, I I think like any student I was a bit lost as a dietitian student and you are exposed to a lot of different specialties. And one thing that I've always really loved has been the science and the biochemistry. I found that really interesting at university, and also all of my psychology units so i was like wow this is so fascinating so how can i integrate all of these together and i did a couple of rotations in a hospital and just to work clinically which is amazing for experience and it kind of helped me learn what i don't want to do as well so it was helpful <laughs> and so i ended up when i moved to london in 2017 i worked privately for a let's call it like a quote-unquote lifestyle clinic they promoted themselves at the lifestyle clinic and I was like great this is my dream job I get to help people I get to help them be healthier um, help them improve their overall lifestyle and lo and behold you get in there and it really is just another type of diet at the end of the day and that's what I find with lifestyle changes is often they can be diets in disguise and through my years working there I worked with a lot of clients over the years I worked with over over 250 clients just in that clinic over a two-year period and I would say the majority of the clients that they worked with in that clinic were struggling with their relationship with food. And we come together, we'd work, we'd have sessions. We'd sit down for an hour, once a week for 12 weeks. I really got to know my clients on a really deep, intimate therapeutic level. And what I was uncovering is this isn't actually a weight problem. It never has been. This is really about our behaviors and our sense of self-worth and confidence and self-esteem and how that's so tied into what we eat and how we perceive ourselves. And Fast forward two years, I won't kind of go into that in too much detail, but after two years of being there, I just felt, oh my gosh, I just cannot do this. I had people coming in to see me wanting to lose weight. And when they make the appointment with the intention of, I want to lose weight and change my body, they're not in the right mindset to me be like, well, let's do intuitive eating. They're like, no, (laughs) I don't want that service. And so lo and behold, my time there just came to a natural end, and I founded my own company at the end of 2019 um, in Body Health London, where I had a business partner, and we worked together for just over three years, and we have now gone our separate ways. As of about three months ago, just to, just due to life changes, and she's off in New York, I might be moving overseas in six months' time, and so it just came to a natural end, um, and now I'm really passionate about the work I do, like specifically within binge eating, dieting, and intuitive eating.
2: That is an amazing journey and it's interesting as well within that like you said about the people coming in when weight loss was already their their goal and how almost that being receptive to a different perspective and how sometimes people just aren't ready to hear that their problem may not be anything to do with changing their body, but be by changing their relationship to food and the the way they you know relate to their body and relate to what they're eating and and where those kind of beliefs about that all has come from? Do you think that our culture, sorry at the moment makes that even more challenging? Do you see a lot of your clients coming in with a lot of comparison issues with things like mm-hmm. social media and I don't know, TV programs like Love Island and things like that. Mm.
1: I think the the climate that we're exposed to, yes, it is definitely a lot more challenging just because we have information and images and the edit that we see of people's lives is like shoved down our throat all day every day and yes it is more challenging just because we have more access to information right so like I was the same as you when I was a teenager I didn't even have Facebook let alone Instagram I think I had my space when I was like 17 years oh, old that kind of shows my age yeah. <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't really a thing until I was about 22 23 I kind of got into the social media world but not, I didn't really really utilize it but Today, yes, comparison is a huge problem when it comes to healing our relationship with food. And the reason I have such a problem with the social media and kind of the role of influencers in our life is that they are only ever giving us this edited version of their real life and they portray themselves to have this perfect life. So whether it be a perfect body, perfect relationships, perfect partner, perfect friend, friend group. And what they're doing there is they're painting this idea that if you look like me and you achieve the body that I have, you will also gain belonging, confidence, relatability, acceptance, which is inherently what we all want. Mm. And so yes, to answer your question, it is, it is more challenging. And at the same time, I would say because of social media, we're seeing the rise of everyone now having access to social media. So different types of influences, fat positive influences, body positive influences. And so you can actually these days, create a really special social media feed with a lot of diversity, a lot of, and and you can follow scientists. Like I follow Cambridge scientists on Instagram. Like you couldn't do that 10 years ago, for example. And so yes, it's more challenging. And at the same time, I think we still want to stand in our power and know that we still have autonomy and responsibility for what we are consuming. And is it maybe about time that we do a clear up of our social media feed if it's not conducive with our overall values in life?
2: Definitely. I love that because I often talk to my clients about our you know our environment and I often say to them our environment now is just as much online as it is who you're living around your parents maybe beliefs about food your partners uh, your friends and you know their talk or like you know even just the outdoor spaces you've got around the the food available to you at your local shops and things like that as well as what you're looking at online and you know how much time you're spending on online and getting them to do that kind of like maybe clear out some of the the feeds that aren't serving you, or, you know, are kind of fueling those negative behaviors or beliefs about yourself. And you're so right as well, because when you go onto social media, it's just a highlight reel of everyone's, you know, everyone's best bits. And it's not really like we don't share the really kind of difficult parts of our days or the difficult struggles that we have within. And I'm guilty of that as well, actually, if I was to, to self reflect, I think a lot of some of the stuff I've been trying to do lately it has been to be a bit more raw and honest.
1: Definitely. I mean, that just to comment on that, really, when you think about achieving more and more and more, the downfall with that type of mindset is let's say you do achieve the weight loss, you get there. And we're still not content. So it's like I'll just try to lose a bit more weight and a bit more weight and a bit more weight. And so if anyone has been through that type of relationship with their weight and their body, and you can nod your head as I'm as I'm saying this, that, that really goes to show that this isn't actually about the weight, it never has been. Healing is an inside job mm-hmm. and it really starts from within and it's a really this dynamic integration of your emotions, so emotional coping skills and reframing and challenging your beliefs and having compassion for your experiences as as a young person and through your childhood and then also educating yourself as well around nutrition like what actually is science what what is relevant to you and feeling really empowered to stand in your own uniqueness because we are all as unique as our fingerprint and that's pretty special and that is your power at the end of the day because the weight loss thing never works.
2: Yeah absolutely I love that it's such a interesting point that actually sometimes the diet can feel like the quick fix it's the easiest option but actually doing that internal work can feel a bit hard it's like, oh, because you're going to have to get uncomfortable and it's going to be emotionally uncomfortable as well as maybe physically uncomfortable to sit in a place where you know it's just out of your comfort zone and you may be realizing some really hard truths about yourself or things that have happened or where those beliefs have stemmed from it's interesting to me because you trained as a dietitian it sounds like your work is very psychological um, and I love this because I did an intuitive eating training course a while back after uni as a CPD kind of qualification and it was all dietitians and nutritionists and me as a psychology grad and by the end of it everyone was like we need to do CBT courses like we, we need to go into psychology because everyone was like wow our eating is so psychological um how was that journey of like combining the two so you're obviously your dietetic degrees Mm. which are very science-based as
1: well and kind of getting into the more of the psych world Mm, yeah it's it's a good question and just to preface this I'm definitely not a psychologist or a therapist and I know my edges Mm. and at the same time when I'm dealing and not dealing but when I'm working with my wonderful clients I'm working with a human And we've all had such a unique experience when it comes to our relationship with food and body. And you do need to have an understanding of behavior change science. So, how neural pathways are formed in our brain, what leads to behavior change, habit formation, and also recognizing the impact of trauma as well. So, I've done a lot of trauma informed supervision and care with my own mentor as well. So, yes, I know my edges. And at the same time, you are right, because it is it is integrating nutrition science with our relationship with food. And the relationship with food is actually nothing to do with food itself. It's the way we think and feel about food. It's our beliefs about food. And so you know, a lot of the training as a dietitian is extremely relevant. I wouldn't be able to work as I do with my clients without that training. And in saying that, I have gone on and done other trainings in trauma-informed care, self-compassion, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, mindfulness-based practices, um, neuro-linguistic programming. Of course, I'm an, an intuitive eating counselor, right? And so just over the years, but I also just love it and I'm fascinated by it. And it just makes me a better dietitian and then I'm able to get those really long-term results for my clients because of this informed based training. So yes, it it does. It's kind of like the gray area, right? And I think what's quite cool about this work is I think England and Australia are just a tad behind America. And so I've done a lot of my training in America at the higher level of dietitians over there. And there's a lot more um the dietitian just does a lot more than what we are trained to do as a nutrition professional and yes of course we know our edges I know exactly where I can and cannot go and clients do bring things up to me when I say this is fantastic I'm so happy you're sharing this with me what what like what do we need to do to get you more support in this area because I can't support you with this so what what would that look like for us is it getting a psych on our team is it getting a therapist is it thinking of like joining a support group you know so there are Ways in which a lot of my um, clients do work with a psychologist and/or a therapist. Some of them don't. It d- depends on the person. Um, but yes, to answer your question, full circle, it's a bit grey, it's a bit blurry, but in a really beautiful way. Yes, it sounds amazing.
2: Like all those courses you said, I'm just like thinking, sign me up. <laughs> so, up my street. It sounds like you've had a really enriched education and experience of all your clients. Um, they're very lucky to have you and your wealth of knowledge. <laughs> um, You said that you work with binge eating, um, people with binge eating disorder. And this is a really interesting topic to get onto because um, I know that the eating disorder charity Beats for last year's Eating Disorders Awareness Week did a massive campaign about binge eating disorder because it's hugely stigmatized and misunderstood. Um, Not only that, but we often hear people saying, oh, no, I've had a binge when actually it's been Christmas dinner and they've just had a bit too much like everyone else in the world. Um, So what is actually
1: binge eating? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Because you you were very right that that weather's thrown around quite a lot. A lot of my clients come to me saying that they're binging when they're just eating enough food to meet their calorie requirements for that day because they're under fueling earlier. So let's define it. So we think about um, an actual binge episode occurs around one to two hours and it's eating a significant amount of food. So more than what an average person would perceive to be normal with the sense of losing control. And it happens two to three times a week, maybe four. um, And there are different categories in terms of severities. Maybe it happens once a week, three times a week, maybe eight to 12 times a week. It really depends on each person and the severity. Um, Whereas... When we think about the word binge getting thrown around in our society, a lot of people are referring to overeating. Now, where I think we can kind of draw the parallel is the feelings of shame and guilt and anxiety, perhaps self-loathing, perhaps the kind of feeling hopeless. Those types of feelings can definitely overlap. Um, But when we think about the binge eating experience, it can often um, it, it's often used as a way to soothe an emotion or it's a coping mechanism or it's a way to numb out or withdraw. It's a way to experience pain or pleasure. It's a way to feel pain a different type of way. So say maybe we're having emotional pain, we may binge to experience physical pain to avoid the emotional pain. You know, it it, it is quite complex and every single, like I've been doing this work for a few years now, and I would say there's no two person who is actually the same in terms of their reasoning behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really important that we do get quite clear on, is this actually binge eating disorder or are you just meeting your energy requirements? Because the difference with binge eating disorder is the individual often isn't coming into the binge in the calorie deficit or maybe under eating. So there's no restriction with binge eating disorder whereas overeating or what people go quote unquote and binging they are often restricting in the first place which then makes them more susceptible and vulnerable to a binge because they're hungry
2: yeah i love that as well and i think it's really important because a lot of the time i whether if i work with people who've got an eating disorder background from anorexia or restrictive eating disorder and this was this this is true in my own story as well in recovery, you can see a period of overeating that can feel to the individual like a binge. And I remember at university, sometimes ringing my mum at home and being like, I've just eaten like all this food and oh, it's all out of control. And I've now switched into binge eating. And actually on reflection, it was my body still healing from the years of restriction and trying to find its equilibrium and trying to you know be like, okay, we're now finding our natural hunger and fullness levels. And sometimes that can mean people, not all the time, but slip into a little bit of time where they're kind of eating more because their body's just getting back to recognizing hunger and fullness. If someone was to go to their doctor and they think, oh, I, I'm struggling with, with binge eating, is there a normal kind of pathway to receive a diagnosis or is it quite a hard,
1: almost like label Mm. to to get in order to get treatment? Yeah. Oh, it's a good question. I, I honestly don't know because the reason I don't know is because every single doctor is different and it really depends on the GP that you're seeing. If you have a relationship with them and their level of awareness and education of eating disorders, um, What I do know is that a lot of individuals go undiagnosed. I mean, I think Beat estimated last year in their campaign that binge eating disorder affects one in fifty people in the UK over their lifetime, which is a significant amount of people, and. There really is a lack of funding, awareness, education. I believe uh, a doctor at university gets one lecture on nutrition and one lecture on eating disorders. I think that is changing, hopefully. But how can they expect to know what to look out for? And that makes it difficult because when you're struggling that often is coupled with a lot of shame and self-judgment and self-blame, often self, self-loathing self and, and self-hatred in some cases, that how difficult is that to then go to your doctor and say, hi, I'm struggling with this because the doctor who is well-intentioned and kind-hearted and has a good soul may interject and tell them just to eat less or here you go, here's a calorie recommendation I, I think you should follow. And so it's... It's a huge problem. I think this conversation really needs to be more at the public health government level. Um, It's really important for awareness, but I know that they are making massive moves when it comes to the education of doctors because that's where it stands.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I was even involved in some of the training at UCL for their psychiatrist students and uh, ran a kind of um, a two-hour lecture for them and people were just mind blown that eating disorders were coping mechanism. And I was like, you're training in psychiatry. <laughs> like It was us, but you're right. It's because a lot of them piped up and said, we get one hour, if that, with eating disorders. And if you think about now the array of eating disorders that we can see, um, then not everyone fits into a stereotype or to a box. It's very difficult for someone who's just received a 60 minute session <laughs> to mm-hmm. then work with such a diverse population as we have in the UK as well so mm. interesting but so what are the risks of binge eating like why is it serious and why should people get help
1: like are there wider risks to like physical and mental health mm. that you see yeah I mean I think it's it, like honestly it, it's overall quality of life we think about physical health that that's not immediate perhaps you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, there may be some physical health implications, such as having elevated cholesterol over a long period of time, um, you know, having high high blood glucose levels, those types of things. But I don't want to scare people. I don't think it's too helpful to talk about that too much now. What I think is more important to really recognize is when we're struggling, when we have low self-worth, when we're using food as a way to cope and we're feeling out of control, the eating and the and the e- the experience of eating is a symptom for something deeper going on and if you're struggling I personally believe that you don't need to have a diagnosis. I think a diagnosis serves an, an important purpose in terms of the right pathway for you to go down to get the right type of support. Um, but in terms of the UK right now, I mean, we are massively underfunded, understaffed, the wait lists are 6, 12, 18 months long, and a lot of people are struggling. And if you have experiences of guilt, guilt, shame anxiety worry if you feel like your mobility is impaired if you're having poor sleep Um, things like relationships can be difficult perhaps you have relationships but they aren't as deep and meaningful as you crave them to be perhaps you have a hard time putting yourself out there and making new friends and joining new communities and so it goes beyond the physical side of things which I mentioned you know kind of down the line but I think it's more of of an immediate problem we think about our social environmental and mental health like if that's something that you're currently relating to it is so worth seeking support. And
2: within that your own kind of like your practice and the way you work with with clients what is like how would you help someone recover from binge eating and is that where the role of intuitive eating comes in to play?
1: Mm, oh, Joss, big question. <laughs> I'll run you through my four-month I'm program. ask small questions, do I? <laughs> no, no. Okay. So let me try my best to break it down into different stages. Okay. So the very first place we need to start is actually with nutrition adequacy and regularity. That's often important because although I mentioned before that people with binge eating disorder may not be actually restricting, what may be happening is they have this uneven distribution of the energy they're getting from food throughout the day. And if we can work towards setting more regularity with eating, more adequate eating, have a just a general basic foundation of nutrition, so getting in enough protein, enough carbs, enough fats, nothing too hectic at at the early stages, but just getting a nice stable foundation in order to lay down the roots of healing. It's very difficult to begin to move into more of the emotional coping skills and building body trust if there's not consistent regular nutrition. And what's happening is when the body is in this kind of feast and famine mode, the brain is always going to signal you to feast it's always in this feast mode it's always we need to go and get some more we we are threatened by whatever it might be there's not enough food we're feeling unsafe and so having that regularity is the most important thing from there we can then look at exploring intuitive eating if it feels relevant, and it really depends on the person, right? And so what I would often spend time exploring with clients in the early stages is diet culture and understanding their relationship with diet culture, how it's impacted them, what it was like for them in their house growing up, what was their relationship like with their caregivers and food. You know, often there there is often some type of correlation with food behaviors that occurred under the age of 25 and how that now impacts our relationship with food as an adult. And so it's getting really clear on, you know, was there any scarcity? Was there any food insecurity? Was there any bullying? And, you know, and I, and I don't spend too much time in, in the past, you know, my work with clients is very much future focused, action focused and skill building, but understanding what has your relationship with food been like? We need to really understand that and Based on that, we would then go into some psychoeducation around diet culture, um, around body mass index, around weight stigma, and all of those really important topics just to debunk in the early stages. Um, In regards to them moving through the intuitive eating principles, again, I don't kind of go principle one, principle two, principle three. For those who don't know, there are 10 principles of intuitive eating. I really ebb and flow based on what the client is experiencing. So from... Nutrition being the foundation through understanding diet culture and the lens through which they view food in their body. We would then step into understanding nervous system regulation. This is where that trauma-informed care comes into play. You know, um, the nervous system is often dysregulated, when we are struggling with binge eating, we are in a fight, flight or freeze response. Often subconsciously, maybe we are always in, in, in that type of arousal. So we're very unaware of that being our normal state of being. And it's very difficult to start to recover and start to intellectualize the intuitive eating principles if you are in fact dysregulated. As a lot of my work is really around nervous system regulation and understanding how to get out of our heads and drop back into the body and using the body as a resource. Oh, I love that and what kind of ways can people do
2: that like what ways would you use Is there things like I'm thinking of like mindfulness and meditation and breathing yeah. and yoga but is there some like quite practical skills that you use?
0: Yeah
1: or? I mean all of those all <laughs> of the above we can think about general ex, like uh, general um Day to day exercises such as getting adequate nutrition, moving our body in the way that feels good, getting enough sleep, getting outside, getting some daylight—like those types of day to day habits are really important to begin to form to help the nervous system regulate. Um, I I will just preface this this by saying, you know, our nervous system is meant to self-regulate and we can learn skills and strategies to help it do just that. We can help the nervous system self-regulate by taking action and being curious and quite mindful around when we are, you know, in that fight or flight response, when we are in that freeze response, what do we need? And so if we're feeling quite um, anxious and kind of, kind of high breath and and quite overwhelmed in the in that type of state. Perhaps just for example, there may be you know pent up energy, p- pent up storage that that needs to be released. And so in some cases, um, a really fantastic evidence based uh, exercise is to shake. So shaking is fantastic to help us you know uh, relax the nervous system back into um, the parasympathetic nervous system that that mode of feeling more calm and at ease and grounded. And I liken that to watching animals in the wild. You'll see that when animals get chased by a lion, they kind of shake it off as, as a response to the threat that was the lion. And then they just, get, and then after that, they're cool, calm and collected and they get on with their day, right? And so often us humans, I mean, we are a part of the animal kingdom. We perhaps have some like pent up tension, stress, anxieties that need to be shaken out. And often through engaging in an, a body-based exercise Exercise, it can help the nervous system then regulate back into that lovely, what we call the window of tolerance, to then make a um, more aligned choice. And it's not to, like, just to preface this as well, it's not like we don't do these exercises as a way to not eat. That's not the point of them. The point of the exercises is that as a way to regulate, so self regulate, come back into a window where you're feeling like you can tolerate more, and then making a choice based on how you're feeling in that moment
2: yeah so when you're in that window of tolerance you can make a kind of more um regulated and conscious decision rather if you're in that kind of a hypo or hyper states of kind of you know yeah being in the dysregulated fight flight or freeze modes
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh- definitely Now I'm going to rudely interrupt this episode just for a moment of your time to remind you that if you are resonating with any of today's content if you yourself are struggling from binge eating or a really disordered relationship or difficult relationship with your food and body image and maybe even exercise then please head on over to the show notes there is a link to a free intuitive eating guide created by myself that you can download from my website you can also book in for a free discovery call with myself where we can have a good 45 minutes discussing what's going on for you and looking at some practical solutions to put in place that is all free and all accessible via the show notes While you're there, please remember to give this podcast a rating and share it on your socials, as it really is an easy way to support the free content that I produce for you online. Now, without further ado, let's get back to the episode.
2: So going back to kind of intuitive eating, uh, for those listeners who are like, what is intuitive eating? And, you know, maybe there's some snicks out there who are like, is it just another another diet masked by another name, how would you describe
1: intuitive eating and and what is it for? Mm, Yes, great question because you are right. It's very confusing out there and it seems to be trendy at the moment. Now, it's it's not new, right? It's been around since the early 90s and it was defined by two dietitians, Evelyn Tribole and Elise Resch, and they developed the intuitive eating framework as a way to build a healthy relationship with food that didn't consider dietary like um didn't consider it being a diet, and um, so it's very much within that anti-diet realm. And it seeks to promote body trust, while we learn how to get back in touch with our natural cues of hunger, satiety, fullness, craving, satisfaction, and removing any morality from food. It also includes different principles like building body respect, ditching diet culture, making peace with food, Um, rejecting the food police, so letting go of the food rules and then learning how to integrate gentle nutrition. And so intuitive eating is an evidence-based self-care eating framework. And to date, we are very lucky because there are now coming up, I believe, over 150 um, academic papers supporting the approach of intuitive eating with building a healthy relationship with food. And so look at it as a framework and structure and guidelines and principles. And it's really helpful in the healing journey because when we're healing, we need structure. We need a roadmap. We need to learn tangible strategies to implement into our life, to learn how to build body trust. And so look at it as the pathway or the way in which it's bridging the gap from where you currently are to where you want to be. And intuitive eating really means that you honor your unique needs as a person. You generally eat when you're hungry. You generally stop when you're full. When you're eating food for emotional reasons, you do that guilt-free and you allow the food to soothe you and you eat with full permission. And you're not obsessing over food. You know, often we can be so consumed with food and body thoughts and spend 95% of our day thinking about food, thinking about our body. And that's not normal, right? We really should be thinking about food and body around, I don't know, 5%. (laughs) You know, we think about that to consider, okay, how should I feed myself today? What sounds nice for dinner, but we're not obsessing over our food choices. And so intuitive eating provides a framework to get there.
2: That's amazing. And mm-hmm. is there anyone who intuitive eating wouldn't be appropriate for?
1: Yeah, yes, a, a very, a very small handful of, of people. And these clients I personally do not work with. So, Some levels of neurodivergence that would require more specialist support. Some degree, it again, it depends on the spectrum, but also autism um, that would require more specialist support because often there can be more sensory issues there. And anything else that hinders a a person to to feed themselves that would not be appropriate. Um, But that would again require more specialist support. And often we think about autism, for example, there can be sensory issues there as well. So perhaps it's not so much around building body trust, it's just how can we nourish that that individual um Mm. and meet their needs without it without them being at risk of being undernourished
2: really definitely and Mm. also like would you say for people who are struggling with a condition like anorexia Mm. and may not be able to read their body or always you know sometimes in recovery from a restrictive eating you need to override feelings of fullness because of like refeeding syndrome you can get you can get full after like a couple of bites
1: maybe so maybe for that population as well I'm thinking try and think when I yes that's true just yeah sorry I, I actually mentioned that yes um it depends on on what stage you're in right so if you are medically stable Mm. Right. So you're mm. medically stable. You're in recovery. You are you you have restored your weight as well. So you do need to be weight restored before we can start to learn how to trust hunger and fullness, because the most important thing is to get to that place mm. and then we can start to build the body trust because that's available to you. But it does come later down the line.
2: Yeah, I think the thing I love about intuitive eating and I came across it quite well, well into my recovery, um, you know, I was living independently. I was, I was doing really, really well, um, and it really was the thing that pushed me into full recovery. I think, um, but I just loved this—the fact it does focus on building self-awareness. It's all like, let's look like the food rules that sometimes you don't even know you're following. Where those beliefs have come, like your past experiences with food. So looking at like social media and diet culture and things like that, and actually. I found that really helpful to remind myself that actually, the diet and fitness industry is a multi-billion pound you know industry it wants me to buy products it wants me to feel inadequate in my body and actually now I see it as kind of another power move to be like actually I'm going to be confident whether I choose to eat cookies for breakfast or you know whatever and that's my choice in feeling like happy and confident in the reasoning behind my choice in like listening to what my body needs and um I think through that journey was learning to respect my body and to, to care for it as well, which I know um, can be really difficult for people with a disordered eating background. Um, is there a certain, so, this is a bit of an odd question, but is there a principle that you really like? You have like a favorite principle that um, you like to do with clients mm. or that yourself kind of just rings true and that you think is really
1: helpful. Mm, good question. I've never been asked that before. So I'll go with my gut reaction And the one that pops to mind is making peace with food. That I think is probably like one of the most important parts of intuitive eating, because what that entails is decoupling morality from food and taking foods off the pedestal and neutralizing how we feel about food. And when we say neutralizing, what I mean by that is, like you said before, you have cookies for breakfast or you have an apple for breakfast. Neither makes you morally superior. That is just cookies. That is just apples. Neither is good nor bad. Sure, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say that one, it doesn't have more nutrition and more micronutrients and more fiber than the other, but what it doesn't have is moral superiority over the other. And so it's neutralizing our emotional relationship with food. And when we do that, the really cool thing about working towards full permission to eat, so unconditional to eat, um, unconditional permission, excuse me, to eat whatever you want suddenly these foods that we place on pedestals as being really naughty, really bad for us, they just become no big deal. They really effortlessly fit into our life in a really balanced, easy way. And that's exactly as we are designed. We are designed to eat in balance. We're designed to eat variety. We're designed to eat foods that we love. Food is there to be celebrated. Food is there through different cultures, experiences, birthdays, weddings, parties. It's a massive part of our life. And it's really important that we work on neutralizing that because when you do, you trust your body and what might have felt once upon a time compulsive or anxiety provoking becomes no big deal. And you can have a slice of cake or you can have three bites and both are fine. Some days you want more, some days you want less. And that's a really cool thing. You, Like you said before, you take your power back. It's a power move to make peace with food.
2: Definitely. And I I love that because I, again, can resonate with the feeling it it slips into that all or nothing thinking, I think, when the morality comes in, because sometimes we then focus on trying to make such good, quote unquote, choices during the week to avoid those feelings of maybe guilt. And so we don't eat the food that we really want. And then we go to a party and there's all the food that we haven't been allowing ourselves to eat. And it's all there. And we're like, okay you know, for one hour or for one day, I'm going to let myself eat it all and it's okay. Cause tomorrow we're going to jump back onto the, on the, onto the diet train of making quote unquote good or clean choices. And it links all into that kind of, you know, diet mentality and the beliefs that we have and the morality around our choices as well. And then we often hear people use language. "Oh, I'm so bad for eating that. It's like, no, you're human, for eating that. And did you want to eat it? Cause if you did, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that's, I I agree with you, that's one of my favorite principles as well. And probably one now that I hold with me above everything else. It's also helped me to see that, you know, if I don't want something today, I can have it tomorrow as well. So if there is chocolate cake that my mom brings out, but actually I'm really full, I can have it an hour later if I want. Like I don't have to make myself eat it because, you know, there's no time frame or anything like food is just food and I can take it or leave it. And um, I think it's a really important one. Yeah, but a really difficult one for people
1: to, to work through. Yes, yes. It is a step-by-step process and it's a lot easier when you're not just kind of stabbing in the dark because that can lead to overwhelm. And if you try and expose too many foods all at once, it's just going to end up probably backfiring because there's not a, a, a system in place. And when we're thinking about food exposure, when you're first starting, we want to go for the lowest hanging fruit So often I get my clients to categorize their food into green, amber, and red um, based on how it makes them feel and and what their relationship is towards those foods. And so in the early stages, we kind of stay away from the red ones just because that can feel like a bit too much and a bit overwhelming. So we work our way through a handful of amber ones. And as they start to become more green, so more neutral, they start to lose their morality. We then move towards more of the red ones. And so it does require a step-by-step process. It's really helpful and you get to a place where you go through, um, you habituate to those foods. And so they no longer feel like this all a thing that you have to get in now. We're just releasing the internalized pressure. We're helping you feel a bit more cool, calm and collected around those foods. And we're telling your brain that actually you can have this food every day, and be okay, and not binge, and feel safe, and so you start to gather the evidence, and as you gather the evidence for yourself, you feel like, ah, actually, I can do this, and so we do then challenge more of the hard foods down the line.
2: Definitely, so it's kind of lowering that incentive level of the food, so it just becomes just another another option in our day to have or not have. That's great. Um, Do you ever come across individuals who maybe find intuitive eating another kind of thing they're trying to perfect and something that they have to get right kind of like how people sometimes talk about clean eating and the need to you know get it completely right is that sometimes another obstacle that people come up against
1: yes and my, and I say this with love and compassion uh, my assumption would be if that's their perception of intuitive eating that they're misunderstanding it mm. right? and, and how
2: so- would you within that help them because mm-hmm. I'm the word compassion you just used actually I think is probably about you know if we're trying to perfect anything it's about coming back and having compassion that we're human and you know there is no perfect way of being so how is like developing compassion a really important part of intuitive mm-hmm. eating and, and if mm-hmm. so how do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's a huge part, absolutely. And the interesting thing about compassion is that I know a lot of my clients. Relate to this, and I'm sure your listeners will as well, is that we have the capacity to feel compassion. We feel compassion for our friends. We feel compassion for the dog in the park with three legs. So that shows us that, hey, look, you have the compassion. So you have the capacity, rather, to feel compassion. Great. So (laughs) you're another robot. Great news. Let's tick that off the list. And so, how can we approach this feeling you're bringing up, this experience you've had with curiosity? So what do you think went well? What what didn't go quite well? Um, if you were to do it again next time, what would you change, if anything? And so we're changing the way in which we relate to our experiences and letting go of the judgment. And if we're able to let go of the judgment and look at it through the lens of curiosity, already we are accessing compassion because we are like, oh, okay, well, I am a human. I'm allowed to make mistakes. Um, what can I learn from this? And then take with me to the next experience I have. And so that's kind of the kind of first place that I would start. And you know, that's really tying in the self-kindness, the mindfulness, common humanity knowing that we are all human we're not robots it's actually a normal human experience to feel sadness shame hard times welcome to the club (laughs) so come and join us (laughs) and so it's just you know helping people define how they relate to their experiences and then opening up the space to shift that narrative and the more you do that the more that will become your default yeah
2: it can be really hard to learn um I often talk to my clients about it's a very simple one I'm sure you use it lots and I'm sure lots of listeners have heard it said to them many times but just bring it back to you know what would you say to your best friend in this situation if she was sitting there or he was sitting there saying these things to you or having that critical voice in their head what would your response be to them and why does it feel hard to say that to you to yourself um Or I know people in the past have put a picture of themselves as a child on their mirror and said, like, actually, if you're going to talk to yourself, how would you talk to that girl age three on your on your mirror? Because you're talking to the same person Um, and that can just kind of tap into that again, that empathy and that kind of just the recognition that you're talking to yourself in a just a really critical way and that you just need to, you know, put that compassion and empathy back into your voice and into your tone, um, Mm -hmm. which
1: can be just a really simple simple way to practice mm, that's a great example absolutely yes and and I do that I actually reminded me yes of course I, I do that with my client with, with, with my clients quite a lot and it it's like anything right like when you're building yourself like self-compassion and self-awareness and becoming an, an intuitive eater recognize here that, that you're building new skills and building new skills takes time and you learn new skills through repetition and practice and it's not always going to go to plan and that's okay it's recognizing okay what about this experience did did serve me and what didn't and so it's just allowing yourself if you can to almost zoom out from the experience take a bird's eye view perspective and not be so harsh on yourself because we can be our own worst critic we all can i can <laughs> well welcome to the club i definitely can and i have to catch myself sometimes in that narrative, and I'm thinking, wow, okay, I am, you know, spiraling and letting these negative thoughts take a hold of me. What's been going on for me for the last 24 hours? You know, have I been triggered? Have I had a snarky email? Have I had a fight with someone? Have I seen a Facebook photo from 10 years ago? You know, whatever it might be, that can be quite helpful to practice self-reflection and recognize when you are triggered and you are stimulated to access compassion that way as well. Definitely. Yeah, I love that. Um interestingly you talk about you
2: know being triggered or maybe seeing a picture of yourself Mm -hmm. 10 years ago and how do you keep yourself healthy and um I guess not triggered by working with people who maybe have a difficult relationship with food and Mm -hmm. um because if you're talking to people all day every day about you know body image and food like are there some practices that you use to kind of disconnect Mm -hmm. and just to calm yourself down and make sure that you're um, your relationship with food and yourself, mm. it's okay.
1: Yeah. Oh, good question. That I love a personal question. I haven't had a personal <laughs> yeah. question on a podcast in ages. I, um, I No, no, I, I love it. I love because it's relevant, right? I'm, I'm a human, my goodness. I have regular therapy. And I see my clinical supervisor and mentor as well. So I've got some support, um, one kind of professional, one personal. That's really important. I think, I mean, this is my opinion, but I believe it's irresponsible to do this work without getting support yourself because um, a lot can come up and you can be working with complex trauma clients as well. And so you need to have an outlet for yourself. And I find that to be a non negotiable for me. Um, now, in regards to just my, my, my general life, um, I, I know personally that I thrive off habits and routine. And so I really try my best to have a really regular bedtime and a really, really regular wake up time, even on, on the weekends. I know five years ago I used to like sleep in on the weekends, and then come Monday I could like drag my feet out of bed and I find it <laughs> so exhausting. And so I really try my best to have regularity with sleep. That's kind of again a non-negotiable. I try and go for eight, maybe nine hours. That's my number one priority. And I think a lot of us don't value sleep enough. And that's a really great way to regulate your nervous system. And I know if I don't sleep, if I'm restless, the next day I'm irritable, I'm moody, I get a headache. I just can't function without sleep. So I, I, don't, I don't have kids yet. Yet. So when I have kids, I'm screwed. <laughs> so right now in my childless life, that's my number one priority. Yeah, definitely. Um- And then I find everything else falls in around that. Um, So if you're well rested and you're taking care of yourself through the lens of sleep, I find I'm better able to nourish myself, make healthy decisions, not just with foods, but in all aspects. So not spend too much time on my phone, um, put in healthy boundaries, stay connected to people that I love, move my body in a way that feels really good. And some, some weeks for me, I know personally, I'm very impacted by my menstrual cycle. I just am my energy is all over the place and so one week I go to the gym five days a week next week it's one yoga class (laughs) and so it's just the way it is right and so it's recognizing how I feel and then really going with the flow. So general overview, that's what, what I do. And I really prioritize taking care of myself because I don't believe that self-care is is selfish. I think it is essential because yeah. if I'm taking care of myself, I'm a better dietitian, partner, friend, daughter, sister. I just am. If yeah. I'm not number one in my life, then I can't help others. And if I'm going to be a healer, a dietitian, whatever you want to call myself, a coach, Um, I need to look after myself. Otherwise, how can I support my clients to do the same? Amen to that. Yes, (laughs) all the above.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I um, I agree. I have supervision, obviously, clinical supervision in my roles, and I find it so... Important because sometimes you don't even realise stuff has been brought up for you until you're sat with someone and you're reflecting on your sessions or you know and you're talking about a case or you need some extra help and suddenly you're like oh my gosh like <laughs> um, and it is it's such an important part of any clinical work as well amazing so just like wrapping up and coming to the end because I'm sure my listeners are, are bored of my voice now for another week um, <laughs> I doubt that <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you if anyone's listening today and they've got a kind of difficult relationship with um, food and body image at the moment what would be your top three tips just to kind of get them started Mm.
1: number one and I know this might feel really scary can you find one person in your life who you trust and who you can talk to about your struggles maybe it's not a family member maybe it's a friend maybe it's a colleague just is there someone in your life that you can talk to because I promise you I can guarantee they want to help you it feels scary in our minds when we think about being judged by others but again let's go back with your best friend's example imagine if a friend came to you and told you that they were struggling how would you feel Your friend or whoever you tell will feel the exact same way as you. You're human, you connect. And in the wise words of Brené Brown, vulnerability is the key to human connection. And so please, please, please tell someone. I just can't urge you enough. It will make you feel like you've lifted this massive weight off your shoulders. And I like to say a problem shared is a problem halved. Number one. (laughs) So tell someone, please. You don't have to struggle in silence. And people who love you don't judge you. Mm, definitely they don't. And if they do, get rid of them. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. Number one. Number two. Hmm. I'm thinking here. Is is there a way that we can think about one of these techniques that you and I spoke about today that you can integrate into your life? And so let's forget about the food for a moment, but is there something else that we can integrate? Is it perhaps getting a good nighttime routine? So working on sleep hygiene, is it having more, more regularity with some basic self-care, right? So sleep, number one. Um, I often find that sleep can be a bit all over the place and a bit disruptive. And so maybe for you, it's not spending too much time on your phone or having a cutoff time for putting your phone away and getting that blue light simulation. So just being quite aware of your behaviors around your sleep patterns and is there room to improve there? Because that really, really, really influences what you eat the next day. And so you can tackle sleep first and really prioritize that. You might find that that will ripple into how you feel and your cravings may not be as intense the following day, just for example. Um, number three, I mean, as a bonus four, I would say, can you get support? Please do it because support is the best thing that you can do, but let me assume that people can't get support. Um, the third thing I would recommend is can you get outside? every day can you can you ensure you get outside and and get some fresh air and get some exposure to sunlight if the sun's shining in the UK it is today so it's quite a nice day <laughs> yeah, so it prompted right. my my mind but getting out in nature at least can you get outside take a deep breath in deep breath out and just experience being in nature and so I start with really with the basics there get support to chat to someone if you can that you trust get good sleep so focus on sleep hygiene and get outside and and immerse in nature I love that fab
2: and if people are listening and they would like to get hold of you for you do Mm -hmm. lots of online courses as well as
1: one-to-one coaching don't you Mm -hmm. Um, where can they find you Yeah, absolutely. So right now I'm doing one-to-one coaching just at the moment. Hopefully, I mean, not hopefully, I will be starting a group course at the end of March, start of April, which is exciting just to make it more accessible because I'm really aware that lots of people can't afford one-to-one private support. So the best place to find me is on my Instagram. It's Cassie Barnard underscore dietitian. And we are recording this podcast today on the 13th of Feb, but my website is going live, the revamped version on the 18th of Feb. So maybe by the time the podcast comes out, the website should be live. Be. <laughs> That's cassiebarnard.com easy. exciting and i can put links to both those
2: things in the show notes as well to so make it super easy for anyone listening to go and find her um i highly recommend her instagram as well if you're looking for just a really going back to that environment online that really positive and i always learn so much from her instagram feed as well um so if you're looking for a really positive addition to your feed i recommend giving her a follow as well
1: thanks but- joss that's really nice <laughs> thank <You're welcome>.
2: you <laughs> and i always end with like a random question and Ooh, okay. it was something i'm a bit curious about but if you had to pick one is it going to be Who oh. for guacamole for the rest of your
1: life guacamole because i just love guacamole because i love um doritos like crunchy oh, same so i love a, i love a guacan dip like with um corn chips or on nachos or on tacos yeah guacamole for life for sure easy question
2: (laughs) are you like yeah it is for me I'm I'm a guacamole fan do you like a kind of a chunky one with all like the red onions and stuff in it or do you like it Mm. when it's like really smooth and kind of blended
1: Depends on my mood. <laughs> I, I like both. I like that, like the salsa version. That is divine. Um, and that can be a fun way to get some more micronutrients in if I'm kind of playing around or just having corn chips. Or I just have like a smooth um, guacamole in like a wrap or something's also super nice. It depends. Yeah,
2: it's great question. And now I know what I'm going to need for my wrap as well. <laughs> me too. Guacamole. <laughs> all the way. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and get all your wisdom And yeah, I will speak to you again soon. Thanks, Joss. All the best.